You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Uh, guys, I have one more announcement if you'll bear with me. And honestly, I want to talk to the folks on the live stream and on the podcast just for a minute. So uh, most of you guys that are sitting here walked in uh, with a mask on. Uh, Some of you guys are are socially distanced now and feel comfortable removing that. That's okay. Uh, But I do want to say this. One, I know that we have folks that are hard-pressed when it comes to wearing face coverings and masks. And I know that there are some folks that are not gathering with us because that has been reinstituted. And here's what I want to say as your pastor really clearly and plainly. At this point in time, it is not a political issue for us. This is an issue of our King Jesus. The building that the Lord has allowed us to gather in has instituted these policies, and I and I want all of us to be ready and willing to be as inconvenienced as humanly possible in order to gather with the body, to make much of Jesus, to experience his presence and watch as the gospel actually transforms lives and marriages and communities. And so if you're not here because of that issue, you are missing out sorely on what the Lord is doing. And so with that, guys, we are going to dive in. Again, I do that not to be heavy-handed, but because I so value what the Lord does when the church gathers together and we expect that he moves and works in powerful ways. So today we are wrapping up this short four-week sermon series that we've been walking through, outlining the mission and the vision of Mercy's Door. And so we began in week one outlining our mission and who we are as a church that comes directly out of Matthew chapter 28 as Jesus gives the great commission to the disciples. He says to them that all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him, and therefore they should go into all the world to make disciples. Right? He says to his disciples to go and to make more disciples. The mission of the church, not just the mission of this church, but the mission of the church, universal, from before we have ever existed, is to be disciples who make disciples. To be disciples who make disciples disciples. Now the only problem with that is asking the question, what in the world does it mean to be a disciple who makes disciples? And that's what we've spent the last three weeks unpacking. For us as a church, we describe the process of being disciples who make disciples in three rhythms that build on themselves. The first is knowing Christ. Our lives as Christ followers begin by us deeply knowing and living with Christ. First, we know Christ as Lord and Savior. We come to know Him as He actually is. That Christ Jesus is God in human flesh who condescended to come from heaven to earth in order to ransom and redeem fallen humanity. That is who Christ is and it's what He does. But we also come to know him as a faithful friend and companion. Christ is not inaccessible, but that when he came for us, he actually came to us. 
And so to know Christ is not just to know of what he has done, but to actively know him now, to live life with him. Ours is a life of walking with Christ, depending on Christ, finding the beauty of Christ day by day by day. The first rhythm of being a disciple who makes disciples is that we must know Christ the one whom we follow, the one who we invite others to follow. The second rhythm is to believe the gospel. We we spent a lot of time on this last week. If you weren't here for it, I would encourage you. You've got to go back and listen to it. It was a lot we covered, but the central point is this. Believing the gospel is not something that you do once for the rest of your life. It is something you do moment by moment until you reach the day why you and I are face to face with Jesus and we no longer live by faith, but by sight. The gospel is that Jesus is our everything and has changed everything for us. He is our justification and our righteousness. In Him we are forever declared innocent, clean, spotless, perfect. There is therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. He is our sanctification. The way that we are conformed to His image, the way we grow in holiness, is not by trying to do better and be better, but by believing that in Christ we are already made perfect. He through His indwelling presence, sanctifies us, grows us, conforms us. And finally, He is our redemption, the hope that one day He will complete what He has started, that all things broken, sad, will come untrue at the day when He returns to restore what we, through our sin, have broken. We believe the Gospel, knowing Christ, believing the Gospel, and today we come to our final rhythm of being a disciple that makes disciples which is loving people jesus himself here in john 13 john 13 is the beginning of a really long discourse of several chapters that all takes place the night that jesus is betrayed and on that night jesus says as we read in 13 34 and 35 a new commandment i give to you that you love one another just as i have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, if there is any topic that seemingly we as a people, as a culture can agree on, it's love. Right? You might, in fact, say that our, our culture worships love. It reveres love. But there's a problem, and the problem isn't that we love love too much or we revere love too much. The problem is that we really don't know as a culture and as a people what love is. Love as a word is polysemic. I learned that this week. I always love learning a new word and pretending like I'm a really intellectual, Uh, but I'm from Mascuda, okay? And, And so if you're not from here, you'll figure it out. It's all right. Polysemic means that there is a word that, though it is one word, it has a lot of definitions. The definitions may be loosely related, but they are not the same. Uh, Think of the word man for a second. That's another polysemic word. You can say that the definition of man is to be a human. 
You are man versus an animal. But you can also be man as a definition of being a male. You are man versus a woman. Or you might say that to be a man means to be an adult. You are a man versus a child. All of these have different definitions. They sound close enough, and yet they are different enough that without proper context, no one really knows what you're talking about. In love, perhaps more than almost any word in our culture is this way. Think of just these definitions of what it means to love. In our culture, to love may mean to desire someone or something, to have a feeling of longing or desire. To love may mean to offer physical affection to someone. To love may mean to engage in physical intimacy with someone. To love may mean to affirm or to encourage someone no matter what they are doing. To love may be to be infatuated with someone or something. To love may mean to serve or sacrifice for someone or something. All of these would easily be ways that our culture interchangeably uses the word to love. I've oftentimes said the problem with love is that I can love a cheeseburger and my wife at the same time. Right? I can love a meal. I can love a sports team. I can love a hobby. I can love an addiction in the same way in our culture as I can love Christ Jesus, my spouse, and my children. The issue here is our definition is far too broad. So when Jesus says that we are commanded to love one another, it doesn't mean anything unless we understand what he means when he says love. So that's what we're going to spend our time today, defining what it means to truly love, what biblical Christ-defined love looks like. We're going to spend the the bulk of our time asking the question, what is love? And then we'll end the plane, we'll land answering the question, how then do we love? But first, four postures of love that Christ himself defines in John chapter 13. Love incarnates, love lowers, love reaches, and love redeems. Let me say those again, love incarnates. Love lowers, love reaches, and love redeems. Let's start with the first, love incarnates. Flip back to the beginning of John chapter 13, if you will, starting in verse 1, and we read this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus here in John chapter 13 is gathering with his disciples in preparation to celebrate the Passover feast. John tells us what weighs heavily on Jesus and what weighs heavily on this moment. 
This is the end of Jesus' public ministry. Three plus years that he has spent with the disciples, crisscrossing the, the nation of Israel from Samaria to Galilee to Judea. Jesus has taught and healed and worked miracles and proclaimed the coming of the kingdom, and it is drawing to an end. We're told that his betrayal at the hands of Judas Iscariot is imminent, that his death is imminent. This is the climax, if you will, of all Scripture. But one of the things I think we miss as we cast our eyes on this moment, as we become increasingly with the story of the Gospels, is this simple fact. Jesus is here in this story. We, we, we lose the miracle of Christmas, if you will, as we begin to work our way to the glory of Easter. Here's what I mean by that. The disciples on this climactic night, after years of ministry, gathering together to celebrate this holy day, are joined by Jesus the Christ, God in human flesh. God is here in the midst of His people. We, we planted Mercy's Door in 2017, and, and Rachel and I moved back down from Chicago in, in 2016. We had been married for about 10 years, and, and we had had four kids at that point in time. Then we moved back down here and decided, you know, what, what goes really well with planting a church? Having a fifth child does. Uh, but when we moved back down here, we'd never lived within about four and a half to five hours of, of my parents or her parents. Now, when we moved back down here, we got something new that we hadn't had with our parents before. No matter where we were, we had their affection, we had their commitment, we had their love, we had their celebration, we had their interest, but we didn't have their presence. And, and let me tell you, as a parent of little ones, moving back down here, their presence changed everything. Pretty sure that's why we have a fifth child at this point in time. Right? Love and presence are intertwined. We can love people nominally from a distance, but the epitome, the apex, the climax, the fullness of love includes presence. A couple weeks ago, a good friend of mine here at Mercy's Door at the end of a sermon came up and he said to me, hey, Michael, are you not feeling good? And I said, what's, what's wrong? Do, do, I, do I look sick? And he said, no, you didn't mention Genesis chapter 3 and Adam and Eve. And, and the tongue-in-cheek was, if you've been here at Mercy's Door, you know that we, we believe and we declare that Scripture, as a matter of fact, all of humanity is a part of one grand story of redemption that the Lord is writing. And so we repeatedly ground our, our passages in the New Testament, the hope that we have, back in the fall of mankind, in the destruction of peace and rest and relationship with God that happened in Genesis chapter 3. And Genesis chapter 3 tells us that we were made to be in the presence of God, but we have lost it. And so we see the climax of God's love for us in the fact that He comes back to us. Love incarnates. It draws near. 
God's perfect love for us means that He has made a way for us to be with Him and Him to be with us. So living out love the way that Jesus loves means that we love and live incarnationally. That word incarnation means enfleshed, in living color, next to people. You know, there, there's a Bible verse that we throw out when, when people are, are hurting or celebrating. It comes from Romans chapter 12. It's verse 15. It says that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But that verse is not primarily about empathy. It's about presence. That word with, when it says rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, means among, alongside of, in the presence of. It means that when people are rejoicing, we don't just rejoice from afar, right? We don't Facebook rejoice. And when people are weeping, we don't Facebook weep. We rejoice in their presence. We weep in their presence, actually with them, incarnationally among them. This is why community is so important. Let me up the ante. It's why community is non-negotiable. Because Jesus has called us to love like He has loved us, and He did not love us from afar. Because that love was insufficient for what we need. And now, as the body of Christ, to love people from afar is utterly insufficient. And so let me ask you the same question I've been asking myself all week. Do you love incarnationally or do you tend to love from a distance? And listen, as an introvert, this is hard for me. It can be exhausting for me to enter into people's sorrow and suffering, even to enter into their rejoicing. It takes emotional energy from me, and yet I have to believe that when the Lord says it is good, even if I feel poured out and drained, that the Lord would have me feel poured out and drained then, because maybe then He'll fill me. Love is incarnational. Incarnational love shows up. We see from Jesus that love incarnates. Second, we see from Jesus that love lowers. The story goes on down in verse 12, and it says this, when he, Jesus, had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. God in human flesh has lowered himself to come and be in the presence of his people. He has incarnated. But he's, he goes further. He lowers himself even to serve his disciples. Now this was common in ancient days. Most people wore sandals of some sort. They lived in primarily an arid culture. It was dry and it was dusty and after a day of being outside, they would come inside and their feet would be filthy. Now typically a servant or a slave would be the one that was carrying out this 
cleansing ritual, but there was no servant or slave there except the fact that Jesus, King of Kings, made himself a servant and slave. The Holy Lord of Mount Sinai, the one that when he came down to his people as he brought them out of Egypt, made the earth tremble and quake, and the people were so afraid of this massive, glorious, powerful Lord that they said to Moses, you go and speak to him, lest he break out against us, because if we see him or come near him, we will surely die. That Lord is on his hands and his knees in the muck and the mire, cleaning the dirty feet of those who he created. What is he doing? What is he showing us? Listen, one of the paradoxes of the Christian life is that the Christian life is one that moves downward. Most of us spend our lives trying to be an up and to the right kind of people. Right? We, we start and then we work our way up. And as time goes on, then man, we get better and better and better. But the Christian life is actually the opposite. It's one that as we get closer to Jesus and are conformed more in His image, we follow His path. I told you this before, a counselor of mine, a mentor of mine recently said to me, if you want to be with Jesus, you have to go the places that Jesus go at the pace that Jesus goes. You've got to go to the places and at the pace of Jesus. And the places that Jesus goes is downward. Another way that we talk about this is that Christians live a J-shaped or a J-curved life. Right, if you think of a, a J, we start here when we meet Jesus and we work our way down till death. And it's from the point of death that we then experience resurrection. But you can't get to the resurrection that extends of infinite heights until we go lower. Now, we oftentimes talk about that with suffering and sacrifice, but love is the same. We lower ourselves out of love for one another. Listen to these verses from the New Testament. Romans 12.10, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Where are others? They are above us. So where are we? We are below them. Ephesians 5.21, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit literally means to be covered by something to be underneath of it. Philippians 4.3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Place them ahead of you, over you. John, in 1 John 3.16 says, by this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. I, I, I can remember one time I did a, a physical example while preaching a sermon. Like, typically, if I want to get a point across, I just, like, yell loudly. But I was like, you know what, I'm going to be cool, and I'm going to, like, switch it up. And we were talking about being a servant of Christ, that the, that the last will be first, and that we're called to lower ourselves. And I said, in my household, there is one position that I can get in that is the most vulnerable. 
And it's the position my kids like me to be in, I think because those two things go hand in hand. But I, I used to play where I would like get down and lay down on the floor and I'd cover my face and then I'd call to one of my youngest and they'd try and like weasel their way underneath my arm just to see me. But man alive, without a shadow of a doubt, because I've got five kids, while one of them was trying to weasel their way in, somebody was punching or kicking somewhere else. And when you are flat down on your stomach, you don't have any recourse to protect yourself. You're vulnerable. And Christ says, get down here with me. Why? Because when we lower ourselves for others, we prop others up. Think of the picture of Aaron and her when the Israelites were fighting against the Amalekites. And as long as Moses' arms were lifted up to the Lord, the Israelites prevailed. But as they began to sink, when they would lower, the Amalekites would move forward. They would then turn the tide. And so Aaron and Hur stood on either side of Moses, propping his arms up. Now where were Moses' arms? They were above Aaron and Hur. They were underneath of them. They were bearing up in love. And this is what we do. We, when we love, take the lowly, take the downcast, and we prop them up back into the position that they ought to be. We are image bearers of God, a holy people. Nothing is more valuable, save God Himself, than humanity that has been created in His image. But we have fallen so far. And so when we get low, and we prop others up into dignity, into glory, into love and affection and affirmation and value, we are reminding them of who they actually are. And we are doing the redemptive work that Christ has called us to do. So how is Christ calling you to love by getting lower? Who is Christ calling you to love by getting lower? Jesus shows us that love incarnates, love lowers, and love reaches. Skip down to verse 21. It says, After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom He spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's John, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out, and it was night. You know, perhaps the most shocking part of the scene of John 13 is who is included. Jesus, King of the world, the one who is about to bear the wrath of God for the iniquity of all of humankind. 
God in human flesh, bends down to wash the feet of not just the disciples who are committed to him, but Judas, his betrayer. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus shows his love for his disciples in the fact that he not only lowers himself to serve the ones dedicated to him that we might claim are even a semblance of worthy of that love and affection, but also the very one who would betray him. Recently, I was, I was reading a book and the, the author was talking about the ways in which Jesus, knowing full well that Judas would betray him, seemed to continue to move towards Judas. He moved towards Judas here, in the fact that he lowered himself, that he served him, and he gave him this act of affection. Later on this night in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus or when Judas approaches Jesus to betray him with a kiss, Jesus, in summation, says to him, Judas, what are you doing? Don't do this. Don't you know what you are doing? It's as if even though Jesus knows that Judas is going to carry out, he's still pleading for Judas's soul. Listen, Jesus had strong words for his enemies, strong rebukes. He corrected them, but he also reached for them. He also wept over them, right? I, I think of Jesus looking out from outside the walls of Jerusalem, and he begins to weep. And and Jerusalem signified the religious ruling class, the very people that would clamor for his crucifixion in a few days' time. And as he looks upon that city, he weeps because he cares for them and he loves them. Love reaches because love desires restoration and healing. Matthew chapter 18 is a uh, chapter in Scripture that's known as the church discipline chapter. It prescribes for us how we are to handle those in our midst that are in sin. And the first verse that really deals with this is, is verse 15. It says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Why? Because if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Love reaches towards even our enemies. It pursues even our enemies. Why? In hopes that they would be restored. In hopes that they would have hope in Christ Jesus. And you might say to me, hey, listen, that sounds great, but how, why? Would I do that? Why would I enter? Why would I put myself in that place? And the answer is because all of us were enemies before God until Christ Jesus, out of love, reached for us. Romans 5 says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for who? The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might dare to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still 
sinners, while we were still unworthy, while we were still His enemies, Christ, God in human flesh, died for us. All love moves us towards people. And we are called to move towards all people, to especially reach for those who are far off, to reach for those who are opposed to us, to reach to those who are moving away from us. Because that was your story. None of you were moving toward the Lord when He came for you. All of us stood opposed, stood condemned, stood, ran the opposite direction until by grace the Lord ran us down. Love incarnates, love lowers, and love reaches, and finally love redeems. Skip to the end, verse 31 to 33 of John 13, it says this. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus ends his interaction with the disciples before he gives them this new commandment with a declaration that he is about to be glorified, that he is physically about to be lifted up, lifted up first on a cross, but then also lifted up by the Father. We read in Philippians chapter 2 that he lowers himself to the point of death and death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him to his right hand to be the name above all names, the name at which every knee shall bow and tongue confess. The most important act of love, as wonderful as as His presence and His service, His wisdom and His teaching are, we're told in the passage that many of us have heard in John 3, 16 and 17, that His greatest act of love is His redemption. For God so loved the world, Another way to read that is the epitome of God's love is this. What? That He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Christ's highest act of love was redeeming us from the curse of sin and death and restoring us to Him. And this too is what our highest aspirations and acts of love are meant to be. To redeem means to purchase back. To free a slave out of bondage and into a loving family. Christ's love redeems us and we are called to be ones who go and love with the intent to see redemption come for others as well. We love the broken, we love the sick, we love the hurting in order to bring redemption and healing. Now here's the hard part in our culture. In our context especially, in a cute little small town America like Mascuda or behind the, the, the gates of Scott Air Force Base, 
it often doesn't look like there is a ton of brokenness, a ton of sickness, a ton of hurting, a ton of addiction, a ton of sin. But it's not because it's not there. Because all, apart from Christ Jesus, are desperately in need of healing. All, apart from Christ Jesus, are desperately in need of freedom. All, apart from Christ Jesus, are desperately in need of reconciliation. All, apart from Christ Jesus, are desperately in need of redemption. And in case you didn't need that love, all those in Christ Jesus desperately need to be reminded of their redemption. We have to be a people that do not underestimate the power of the love of Christ. That we go out and love people with permanence and with a hope that can lead to something better. Because the love of the world is temporary and fleeting. Right? It can give a shot of energy. It can give a boost of morale. It can give a seemingly temporary sense of comfort, but it will fade and pass away like the rest of the world. But we offer a love and hope that will never fade and is as secure as the victory of Christ Jesus that it's based off of, which is done and finished. We are not loving people if we are not bringing Christ to them. If we are not bringing the hope of the gospel to them. Now listen, I know that that feels scary. It feels intrusive. And I'm not asking you to pick up a track and just, just set it down in, in front of someone. I'm asking you to love people with the eyes of Christ. And Christ as much as he wanted to f heal the physical infirmities of the people around them, came for their complete healing and redemption. So does your love for others lead you to desiring their redemption? Because love seeks to redeem. So that's what love is. Love incarnates. Love lowers. Love reaches even for the unlovable and love redeems. But how in the world are we supposed to do it? Because here's the truth. What I've just described to you is incredibly dangerous. Right? To, to incarnate, to enflesh, to be in the presence, to give yourself, is to become vulnerable. For Jesus, it was literally to become punchable. Like, do you understand what Christ did in the incarnation? God, who had never known pain, enfleshed Himself so that He could be stricken with the hands that He created, spat upon, condemned with the voices and words that He had given to humanity. To incarnate is to become vulnerable. To lower yourself is to risk being stepped all over. And many of you have personal stories to this effect. To lower yourself, to serve, to sacrifice, to count others as more honorable, to defer your own glory is to risk being trampled upon. 
to reach for others, quite honestly, is to risk taking hold of something that will hurt you. When you reach for something that is opposed to you, you are reaching towards something that could hurt you. And finally, to seek to redeem is to pay a price. To redeem is to buy someone back. Loving this way is dangerous. And and here's, here's what I want you to hear. You know it. And the reason I know you know it is because the reason you don't love this way, the reason that I don't love this way, is because it's risky. Is because it's dangerous. It's because we feel like we'll come up on the losing end. And the key to how we love this way, the only way that we can truly love others, is if we are loved. Otherwise, we will love selfishly. We'll pour ourselves out for others because of what we expect to gain in return. Otherwise, we'll love with prerequisites. Loving only those who have already shown themselves to be worthy of our love. We'll love incompletely. We'll give up when loving becomes hard. When love doesn't seem to make the impact we desire. Or we'll love cautiously. Always looking out for ourselves. Asking the question before we ever approach or love others of whether or not we'll be giving too much. Or whether or not it's safe to give. To love requires to be loved. And the beautiful aspect of this, as Christ has shown us in John 13, is that He has loved us. Christ doesn't call us into anything that He's not already done. The love of our triune God is far greater than our love. You will never incarnate more than He incarnates. You will never lower yourself further than he has lowered himself. You will never reach further than he has reached. And the redemption you offer is only available because he has already perfectly and fully secured that redemption. We can love because Christ has loved us. So here's where my sermon stopped up until about 8 a.m. this morning. When I confessed to my wife, I'm struggling emotionally attaching myself to this sermon. And she said, why? And so I said, listen, I, I see it. I know that we're called to love that way. And I know the truth that Christ has loved me that way. But his love, that he has loved me, just doesn't feel like it tips the scales. And my wife, who is like my utterly essential counselor said to me, Michael, Christ hasn't just loved you. He loves you. It's not just a passive verb. Christ's previous historical love is great. We sing songs about it. But if you don't know his active presence love, then it won't be enough when you are met with the need to love others. He daily incarnates. He is daily with you. You can go and be present with others to love them because where you go, He is. 
He daily lowers Himself. He daily condescends underneath of you, propping you up. We are told in Ephesians chapter 2 that God so loved us that not only did He save us, but He has seated us at the right hand of Jesus. It's as if every moment as we kind of stumble our way through our own sin and temptation, Jesus is under us, propping us up, saying, no, you don't belong in the muck and the mire. You belong in glory with me. You are well-loved. You are infinitely valued. Daily, He reaches for us. No matter how far you wander, He again reaches. You will never be out of His reach, and daily He is working out redemption in your life. That you might know it and experience it in every corner of your life. Church, we are called to be a people that loves because He has first loved us. And as we experience His love, we will love others. It is a beautiful, unbroken chain that we are invited into. So let me end with these two verses from the book of John. The first we read. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, hear these words, having loved his own who were with him in the world, he loved them to the end. You are loved. You will always be loved. And his love overflows from you. And then finally, the words of Jesus himself in John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So come, abide in my love. May that be our prayer this morning, church. Let's ask our Father together that he would do that.